God, whatever it takes, Lord God, to the ends of the earth until we reach Jerusalem. Mighty God, we love you. We praise you things tonight. In your precious name. Amen. Well, we're going to be in Chronicles 12 this evening. I am excited that it uh, seems like you guys were blessed by Chronicles 11. I want to do something a little different before we start. Um, not only because we have a few guests, but it's just good to review a couple of these principles that relate to every area of study in the Word. So uh, I'm going to hand out a couple passages, and uh, then we'll go from there. Nick, why don't you take or quote Mark 12, 24, Tisdale, you take or quote Romans 16, 10, Nolan, why don't you take Acts 17, 11, Pastor Hutchinson, 1 Chronicles 12, 32, Pat, why don't you take uh, Philippians 1, 3 through 6, and then JJ, you take Acts 14, 21 through 23. We're going to hit a couple highlights, and then we're going to jump into a review of Chronicles and then the text of Chronicles. Amen. Amen. Mark 12, 24. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? I want to know both the Scripture and the power of God. Amen. I don't want to sacrifice one for the other, nor do I believe that the Lord will allow that to happen if a man wants both. Yeah. All error in the world stems from either elevating the role of the Spirit, which is not really the role, above the Word, or the Word above the power of God. The truth is, is that they will always co-witness and empower the believer towards God's aim. Amen. Which takes us to Romans 16.10. Greet Apelles. Tested and approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. <laughs> Aristobulus. Aristobulus. We want our positions to both be tested and approved. That can't happen if your position is esoteric. That can't happen if you are so insecure and defensive about your position that you don't submit it for testing. A man who has heard from God never has to be insecure. A great way to test the things that you are teaching is do they stand up to those that have also heard from God, love the word, and are full of the spirit. What's Acts 17, 11? Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. In this Bible study, we are trying to provoke you to go home and study. Now, I know we had an altar call last week. We were here for hours and hours and it turned into more of a preaching. But our, our goal in this is that as you cultivate your heart, areas are challenged so that you go home and study to see whether or not what we're saying is true. The last thing that we want is a cookie-cutter factory turning out people just churning out the same opinion. We want you to wrestle with the Word and come to a conviction that the Holy Ghost has shown you. Amen. Some of you are doing a great job with that, and some of you have such a long ways to go, you need to own up to it and embrace personal study of the Word. What's First Chronicles 12 
and verse 32. It is our hope that as we go through this chapter tonight, that you will better understand our times and know what you should do so that you can devote yourself to line-by-line study that helps you understand the sufficiency of Scripture, its supremacy in your life, and how to apply it to our present situation. Make sense? Okay, Philippians 1, 3-6. Philippians 1, 3-6. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out into completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's our position that no man stands alone as an island. That there is no such thing as a superstar Christian, a superstar teacher. We do not like the lone wolf mentality, period. We believe that to advance the gospel around the world as God intended it, it must be done in partnership. So how do you think you ought to study. (laughs) You can have personal study and we're excited about it, but you ought to be looking for the chance to sit down with each other and share your findings so that it can be tested and approved. So that you can ensure that you are walking rightly. Let's do our last one before we get into the text tonight. Let's do Acts 14, 21 through 23. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. What did they win? Disciples. There is no such thing as winning a Christian convert. You're either winning somebody who is dedicated to these principles or you have uh, deceived yourself. If a man does not become a disciple, then he has not uh, the potential even to enter into the kingdom. They won disciples. They did not win believers. They did not win converts. They won disciples. Even Jesus took three years to make a disciple. Uh, This idea that we're going to go through a six weeks class and you'll have everything you need to know, it has produced the worst educated church in the history of the world. So much so that at the threat of a virus, every church closes because they do not know what the word says and they do not know what Christians throughout history have practiced and act as if the word of God has originated with them. I reject this idea. We are here for discipleship. And you can only get so much in this setting. It has to be occurring in our homes. It has to be occurring around us. What does the verse go on to say? Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Hold there. We don't just win disciples, we strengthen them. And how do we strengthen them? By allowing them and encouraging them that you must go through hardship. The easy path will not perfect a disciple. The easy path will create easy, greasy Christians. If you are not desirous of a difficult path, then you didn't understand what discipleship was. It's hard because it's hard to enter the kingdom. But the Lord will help you in every difficulty. They won disciples. They strengthened disciples. And they didn't do it by patting them on the back and telling them they're wonderful. It it came through 
understanding the difficulties that you must endure in the kingdom. Amen. How does the verse finish, JJ? Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. From our disciples, from the true disciple-making process, comes tomorrow's leaders. The kingdom is not a pyramid. It is not a hierarchy where some super Christian is on top with an Amway downline. The truth is, is if you disciple well, your students will surpass you and they will surpass you quickly because they absorb everything that it took you to learn in 30 years and they do it in just a few years. This puts them immediately on a higher plane. It gives us the opportunity to raise up peers that are capable of leading us. I do not believe that people ought to be pastoring without sons into their 80s. Our goal and the reason we have sons standing next to us teaching is precisely so you can see how quickly you can become competent through discipleship. I'm looking forward to these men guiding me as I reach my 50s and 60s and supporting their work, not the other way around. And my spiritual father is sitting in the room tonight. He was there when I was born again at 18, and today I'm his pastor. That is how the kingdom is supposed to work. Amen. The reason we're going through Chronicles the way that we are, and the reason we've been doing this for 27 years, is because we believe this process works. Amen. Do y'all want to get into it tonight? Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Judah, why don't you take it? All right, saints. Tonight we're in First Chronicles. Chapter 12. Our title is The Army of God. We know that you're going to be blessed by this. We, we are excited in an exceptional way. We had a good time covering chapters 1 through 9. Very happy to see Saul put to death in chapter 10. Amen. We got a little taste of some of David's crown in 11. Tonight has no Saul in it whatsoever. Amen. It is all about the army of God. Yeah. In order to maintain continuity, and our theme, we want to go over a few slides to remind you of the placement of the book Amen. that we're currently studying. Let's put that slide on the screen. All right, so for many of you, you've been here a couple weeks, and you've seen this slide plenty of times, right? Yes. yes. For others of you, this might be your first week, and you're seeing this for the first time. This is an overview of the Older Testament of the Bible. In Hebrew, it is called the Tanakh. Now, the reason why we're showing you this slide, the reason why this is coming up in every study over and over again is because this is what we first look at before we look at each chapter in the week. When we're putting together our teaching, this is what we look at first because we find the order of the Bible originally intended by the Jewish people and the Hebrews teaches us something here. So the Tanakh is Hebrew. For the Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, it's an acrostic. The Torah, the first, first portion, the first five books of the Bible, talks about the founding of the nation Israel. The Nevi'im, or what we would call the prophets, talks about the promised land and going into captivity. And the Ketuvim, the last portion, the writings, which is the portion that we are in tonight and throughout the study, is about how to live a faithful life in historical context. Amen. Now, if Chronicles comes last, if in the Jewish ordering of books, Chronicles comes last, then it is significant that this book relates 
to how to live a faithful life in your historical context. Because Ezra is compiling it. And when he's compiling it, Israel has already gone through captivity. Israel has already experienced multiple failures. The book itself serves as a reminder that God's promise for Israel still stands. You could never walk away from the Tanakh without understanding that if you just read it in the order that it's given. But when we change the order, it obscures that. When you see Malachi as the last book in the Older Testament, which is false, you're ready for Israel to be stricken with a curse because that's how Malachi ends. That's not the subject matter of Malachi, but the way God arranged the order of the books, Chronicles is last, which is a reminder of the Davidic dynasty that God had in mind from the time he created Adam. On that note, Let's turn to Luke 24, verse 44 together. We're going to hear the words of Jesus after we have transitioned to what people would consider the New Testament. We're going to read a contiguous revelation that is the words of Jesus. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Here are saints. Everything must be fulfilled, must be fulfilled, that is written about me. In the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. See, Jesus affirms this form of the canon, that the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms were pointing to him like an arrow that aided in our understanding of his actual life, what he was called to do, and what he had commissioned his disciples to do. Tonight we'll see that in Chronicles, it's written in the same kind of subject matter, themes, and promises. The people of Israel and us Mystery Gentiles that were included are participating in a singular promise that works through the entire Bible, from the law of Moses to the prophets to the writings, which is what Ezra and Chronicles were aiming at. In our historical context, how do we walk out the promises of God, see Christ, and live in it? Now, when you hear everything that was written about me by Moses and in the prophets And in the writings, how many of you immediately think of the crucifixion and the resurrection? (laughs) Are you not going to speak tonight? We tend to believe that when we say, Jesus Christ is Lord, our salvation is done. But that's wrong. As you study, you find out salvation is in all three tenses. You were saved, you're being saved, and you still will be saved. Your body's not been glorified yet. We tend to see Jesus saying on the cross, it is finished as he's completed the work of God. This is far from the truth. Everything that needed to be done sacrificially was done on the cross. But not everything Moses said that the Messiah would do has happened. That's right. yeah. Not everything that the prophet said the Messiah would do has happened. For instance, the lamb is not lying down with the wolf. Right. No. The children are not playing at the hole of the cobra. not everything the writings say has happened so as we move into these passages what we want you to keep in mind is things that were introduced in the Torah carry through the prophets carry through the writings into the New Testament some have come to fulfillment and some have yet to be fulfilled even when Jesus stands in his hometown and he says 
Today, in your hearing, Isaiah 61 is fulfilled. The question is how fulfilled? Because Isaiah 61 goes on to say things that surely did not happen while he was standing in the village in Nazareth. We need to begin to see prophecy as a pattern that continues forward and you see many fulfillments of it until it is completely fulfilled. We're about to transition where we want to cover a few aspects of the character of God. Things that will be useful to our understanding as we progress in Chronicles. But it's worth noting that this is at the end of Luke. This is not Matthew 1. This is not Luke 2. This is Luke 24, 44. After the crucifixion. After the resurrection. Those of you that are familiar with the Gospels, this is after each of these events have taken place. And he says, everything must be. Somebody say, must be. Must be. That it must be fulfilled. And it will be. We're going to see our king reign in every sense of the word, in every prophecy, in every promise that was ever given in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So to kind of give you a small hint of what we're talking about, let's refresh a couple of ideas. Everybody turn to Exodus 15 and verse 2 and say there when you're there. There. Exodus 15, verse 2 through 3. There. 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 It says, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a what? The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. The Lord is a warrior. In English, it says warrior. In Hebrew, it, it says literally he's a man of war, an ish milchamah. Now, in the Bible, the Lord is seen as a husband many times. He's also seen as a father many times. But he is also a warrior. Amen. A father, a husband, and a warrior. If you look at all of the Bible, all of the Tanakh, all of the prophecies, all of those usually fall in one of those three categories. This promise is in the Torah. And it is an immutable characteristic of God that has and never will change. These characteristics about God can never change no matter what. Just because there is a newer covenant that gives us a newer testament, that gives us a newer this and a newer that, it doesn't mean that the older revelations change. Once they are true about God, they are true forever because his character cannot change. You may prefer to see Jesus in the light of Psalm 23. (laughs) With a little lamb around his neck. But the majority of the Bible presents him as a warrior king defending his people Israel from Jerusalem. Now that you know this about God's character, his character is always wrapped up in his promises. Not only is he viewed as an ish milchamah, but at the same time he made Israel a promise in the very same chapter of the Bible. A promise that he will fight for because he's a warrior, just as he did in Exodus. Why don't you take your finger and slide it right down to verse 13, and we'll continue from there. Somebody read that for us. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. All right, time for an interruption. What people are we speaking about? (laughs) Israel. Israel. Keep going. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. You will guide them to your holy dwelling. We're going to go deeper into this in just a moment. But we're speaking about a dwelling place. A place that is a permanent residency. A place where God and man have been led to a perfect union. No matter backsliding. No matter misfortune. 
No amount of bad circumstances would ever change the promise that God had already made to his nation. The God that is leading his people like Psalm 23, like his sheep, his people. He's tender and compassionate to them, but he is a warrior and a warrior is his name. He is the God who is able to shepherd his flock, but also contains the strength to fulfill his promises. We should avoid the desire to redefine, spiritualize, or allegorize this promise because it is ultimately an insult to the character of God. It's like saying that he is insufficient to fulfill his promise. I don't believe he can do it, so let me redefine the promise to make it make sense. No, he is a warrior and he is able to fulfill his promises. The promise takes on incredible specificity. It's repeated many times and there's a reason for that. It's irrevocable. The promise that he made, he will not go back on. This is essential to understanding Chronicles because the reason Chronicles is written and starts with Adam and ends with Cyrus' decree to rebuild the temple is because nothing in history changed God's promise to his people. It also makes it the perfect book to introduce the Newer Testament, which begins with genealogies of the son of David. We're going to start in 2 Samuel 7 as we get close to wrapping up our review, and that will... Launch us into Chronicles 12. 2 Samuel 7, if everybody in the room will get there. We're going to start in verse 8 and read down through 11. And then we'll eventually read through 16. But we're going to interrupt you at verse 11. So who wants to read it? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from the following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning. Keep going. And have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. I'm not going to argue with people about partial fulfillments. But I do want you to understand something. (laughs) David is sitting in Israel when God is telling him, I'm going to give you a place where your enemies will not oppress you anymore. Wow. The promise is made to both David and Israel. He is their king, and this is what will be done through him. Yeah. Amen. It was a mystery that Gentiles would have any part in it at all. Yeah. You can participate with them, but you never get to participate without them. <laughs> it goes without saying that as we stand here right now, Israel is not free from wicked oppression. So the promise made in 2 Samuel, we can see a beginning of its fulfillment, but you have not found its completion of fulfillment. It's true. This being said, if David is standing in the land of Israel as king, and this is told to him, we're not just talking about Israel and a kingship. We're talking about God leading his people to his holy dwelling. And that dwelling is on earth. That promise comes 
from Exodus 15, and it stays consistent all the way through Revelation 21, where you hear the uh, revelator, John, saying, now the dwelling of God is with men on earth. This connects Exodus and Revelation in an unbroken, contiguous line. Let's go on to see what the rest of the passage has to say. And remember that Ezra, the writer of Chronicles, understood this, and he's using Chronicles to emphasize that this promise still stands. Amen. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Who will come from your own body? And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Amen. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Somebody say praise God. Praise God. Did you hear how many times it says forever? Yes. Forever means what, church? Forever. Forever. The chronicler understood this promise. This passage, as well as Psalm 89, check it out, look it up as you leave. Psalm 89 described this promise as irrevocable. This cannot be taken away. These promises given to this people cannot be taken away no matter what. Not because if they seem to be disobedient, not if if so many enemies rise up and try try to wipe them out. It's irrevocable and it cannot be taken away. Ezra is literally chronicling the development of this pro- promise right up to the Newer Testament. That's what the book of Second Chronicles is. It's chronicling the promise and everything that the promise had to be tested by. Everything that the promise had to go through. Trials, exiles, unfaithful kings. Everything that you think would, would take away the promise. He chronicles the promise out of all those things and into what is going to be the fulfillment. Amen. The promise was to Israel, not us. Israel, first and foremost, to Israel's Davidic dynasty and about Israel becoming the dwelling of God through the house of David. Come on, shout hallelujah for that. Hallelujah! I want to show you another slide. In this next slide, you will see the overlapping overlapping subject matters of several biblical works. Amen. I'm glad that slide's growing. I'm getting old. (laughs) Across the top of the slide... You'll see that it goes from Samuel to Saul to David all the way through the Babylonian exile. This is the subject matter that the Bible covers for sure. In the book of 1 Samuel, it largely covers Samuel's life up through Saul. 2 Samuel brings you through the life of David. While 1 and 2 Kings take you all the way from David's death through both the northern exile under the Assyrian Empire and the Southern Exile under the Babylonian Empire. Now, what we're really trying to draw your attention to, though, is what Chronicles focuses on. Chronicles starts with David's life, and it takes you through the Babylonian captivity, but with one 
unified theme. The Davidic promise still stands. What I promised to David will never end. No matter how many ups and downs there are, my promise is good. It will never be taken away. You were actually meant to turn from the last verse of Chronicles to the first verse of Matthew, and it would flow seamlessly for you. It's why Jesus is introduced the way that he is. You guys ready to get in to the main text tonight? One more slide for you. (laughs) One more slide. Who remembers the summary of the two kingdoms? I do. We have the northern kingdom, Israel. It has 19 kings that reigned for 250 years. Of those 19 kings, we have seven different dynasties that make up that 250-year time span. In 721 B.C., or right around there, we have the Assyrian captivity. The southern kingdom of Judah has 20 kings reigning over 370 years. With how many dynasty saints? One! One. The Davidic dynasty. The only dynasty over those 20 kings. The Babylonian captivity brings us to about 600 B.C. This is the primary background of the king who is coming to rule over the earth. Chronicles is all about David and his family. Saul ruled for only 40 years. And David's dynasty lasted 425 years in the documented Tanakh. But it will continue forever through Yeshua. Yeah. Who wants to read a scripture? I do. Have a bola. You read this one. Luke 1, 32 through 33. Bim, read it like a man who's about to become a father. Yeah. say that again. He will give him the throne of his father, David. You see, right now, Jesus is presently seated at the right hand of God. Amen. But he is not seated on the throne of his father, David, in the land of Israel. This must be fulfilled, and it will be. As we go through the chapter tonight, you may see hints as to the events that will surround this process that is still yet to come. Are you guys glad we did that review for you? Yes. I promise you, if we do not do this every time, what you tend to do is you start to see 1 Chronicles as just a group of esoteric stories, and you try to pick the ones you like, or you kind of ask, why is Chronicles in the Bible? Because it's so much like Samuel and Kings. The reason it's there is to remind you of these promises right up into Matthew and go, oh my gosh, it hasn't been fulfilled yet. You're going to see hints to these events tonight as we read in session one, we, got, we covered genealogies that lead us to the Davidic son. In session two, we saw the demise of Saul and the ascendancy of David while noticing that the crowning achievement of David was his men. Yeah. Tonight, tonight, yeah. we will see how his army was built. Are you ready to begin? Amen. You know what time it is now. Yeah. Now is time. <laughs> For one sexy grandma on the front row, my wife of 27 years to read for us. <laughs> These were the men who came.
came to David at Ziklag, while he was banished from the presence of Saul, son of Kish. They were among the warriors who helped him in battle. They were armed with bows and were able to shoot arrows or to sling stones right-handed or left-handed. They were kinsmen of Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. Ahazir, their chief, and Joash, the son of Shammah, the Gibeathite, Jaziel, and Pele, the sons of Azmatheth, Berkah, Jehu, and Ananathite, and Ishmael, the Gibeonite, a mighty man among the thirty, who was the leader of the thirty. Jeremiah, Jehaziel, Johanan, Josabad, the Gerardathite, Eluziah, Jeremoth, Beliah, Beliah, Shemariah, Shephtiah, and Harthuphite, Elkanah, Isaiah, Azarel, Joezer, and Jashubim, the Korathites. You're doing great, Jolah baby. Jolah and the Zebediah, the sons of Jeroam, from Gedor. Some Gadites defected to David as his stronghold in the desert. They were brave warriors, ready for battle, and able to handle the shield and spear. Their faces were the faces of lions, and they were as swift as gazelles in the mountains. Ezer was the chief, Obadiah the second in command, Eliab the third, Mishmana the fourth, Jeremiah the fifth, Atai the sixth, Eliel the seventh, Johanan the eighth, Elzbad the ninth, Jeremiah the tenth, and Machbani the eleventh. These Gadites were army commanders. The least was a match for a hundred, and the greatest for a thousand. It was they who crossed the Jordan in the first month when it was overflowing all of its banks. And they put to flight everyone living in the valleys to the east and to the west. Other Benjamites and some men from Judah also came to David in his stronghold. David went out to meet them and said to them, If you have come to me in peace to help me, I am ready to have you unite with me. But if you have come to betray me to my enemies when my hands are free from violence, may the God of our fathers see it and judge you. Mm. Then the Spirit came upon Amasai, the chief of the thirty, and he said, We are yours, O David. We are with you, O son of Jesse. Success, success to you, and success to those who help you, for your God will help you. So David received them and made them leaders of his raiding bands. Some of the men of Manasseh defected to David, and when he went with the Philistines to fight against Saul, he and his men did not help the Philistines because after consultation, the rulers sent him away. They said it will cost us our heads if he deserts to his master Saul. When David went to Ziglag, these were the men of Manasseh who defected to him. Adinah, Josabad, Jedidiel, Michael, Josabad, Elihu, and Zelathiah, leaders of units of thousands in Manasseh. They helped David against raiding bands, for all of them were brave warriors, and they were commanders in his army. Day after day, men came to help David until he had a great army, like the army of God. Come on! Come on. These are the number of men, armed for battle, who came to David at Hebron to turn Saul's kingdom over to him, as the Lord had said. Men of Judah, carrying shield and spear, 6,800 armed for battle. Men of Simeon, warriors ready for battle, 7,100. 
Men of Levi, 4,600, including Jehoiada, leader of the family of Aaron, with 3,700 men, and Zadok, a brave young warrior with 22 officers from his family. Come on. Men of uh, Benjamin, Saul's kinsmen, 3,000, most of whom had remained loyal to Saul's house until then. Men of Ephraim, brave warriors, famous in their own clans, 20,800. Men of half of the tribe of Manasseh, designated by the name to come and make David king, 18,000. Men of Issachar, who understood the times and knew what Israel should do, 200 chiefs with all the relatives under their command. Men of Zebulun, experienced soldiers, prepared for battle with every type of weapon to help David with undivided loyalty, 50,000. Men of Naphtali, 1,000 officers together with 37,000 men carrying shields and spears. Men of Dan, ready for battle, 28,600. Men of Asher, experienced soldiers, prepared for battle, 40,000. And from the east of Jordan, men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, armed with every type of weapon, 120,000. All of these were fighting men who volunteered to serve in the ranks. They came from Hebron, fully determined to make David king over Ooh, all come Israel. On. Come on. All of the rest of the Israelites were also one-minded to make David king. The men spent three days there with David, eating and drinking, for their families have supplied provisions for them. Also, their neighbors from as from afar as Issachar, Zebulun, Naphtali, came bringing food on donkey, camels, mules, and oxen. There were plentiful supplies of flour, fig cakes, raisins, raisin cakes, wine, oil, cattle, and sheep. For there was joy in Israel. Hallelujah. Nobody's rejoicing more that Jennifer read that chapter and it's done than Jennifer. <laughs> We're going to begin back with you in verse 1. And uh, we have some exciting things for you regarding this tonight. Mr. Linton, yes. why don't you catch verse 1 and 2. These were the men who came to David at Ziklag, while he was banished from the presence of Saul, son of Kish. They were among the warriors who helped him in battle. They were armed with bows and were able to shoot arrows or to sling stones right-handed or left-handed. They were kinsmen of Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. Look, the king is enthroned. That happened in the last chapter. And Saul is now dead. But the chronicler is going through great lengths to describe to you how it is that David assembled an army and he calls the army like the army of God. In other words, there's no reason to be telling this story right now. David's already on the throne and everything we're going to talk about happened before he got on the throne. But the chronicler presents David's men like a crown, his best achievement. And after doing that, he wants you to know how they came to be a part of his army. If you have eyes to see tonight, you're going to make connections between this and how Yeshua, son of David, builds his army. Both armies will be armies like the army of God. There's a slide here that we want to show you. There'll be three stages in this chapter tonight of what I would call voluntary conscription. Now, strictly speaking, conscription is by force. It's when the government tells you you must. 
The reason we're calling it voluntary conscription is because these men were irresistibly conscripted and drawn by the Spirit. And their lives showed it. This was not a religious obligation. They fell in love with the king of the Jews, the Davidic son. The three periods that we're going to cover are actually in chronological order. And and you can read them, and we studied them in 1 and 2 Samuel. But what the chronicler does is he just divides them into threes. They start with during the banishment at Ziklag. Then the second stage is in the desert, but while David is in a stronghold. And the third stage is just before and at his kingship in Hebron. So within these three stages, we're going to cover each of these men's lives. We want to begin in the first stage with the guys who came to David in his earliest beginnings. You see, David had been anointed by Samuel at this point, but he had not been crowned king in a way that the whole world knew about it. There's something very special about men that come running to the king when it's not obvious, when he's not in his palace, when he's not on his throne yet. And there's a special blessing that's associated with it. Amen. Who wants to take a scripture? I do. Rob, get Luke 22, 28 through 32. We'll hand out more, I promise. Luke 22, 28 through 32. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. I confer on you a kingdom. Just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Pause there for a moment. Who are we speaking to? We're not speaking to the five thousand in a crowd. We're speaking to the twelve. And then he speaks to them about eating at his table, about a kingdom being conferred upon them, and judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Just hold on to that for a minute as we progress through some of these scriptures. Robbery 31 through 32. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Amen. There is something very similar between the 12 that Jesus originally chose and those that rallied to the son of David, or David himself in the beginning. There is a special blessing that is associated with what Jesus says here, that while many are going to come to him soon in the future, there's something unique about walking into a little bitty garage church in its first couple days, or moving from Louisiana and being discipled when it didn't look like there was much happening here. See, David is the shadow and type of the son of David that was coming, had a few men that abandoned all to come to him. They, like Peter in this passage, have experienced a sifting, And it's special because they came to David, the son, before the resurrection, before a growing acceptance, before a great and large testimony that all men would know about. There is a sifting that happens that brings about this blessing. When you're looking at something that you believe God is going to do, you believe that God is working in a man, working in this situation, but you don't yet see the fruit of it. Saints, that's called faith. That faith rose inside of these men when he was still In stage one, when we're still in zip and we have none of the visible signs that we're going to see here in just a moment. They, like Peter, also serve to strengthen their brothers because their experiences with the Davidic son are foundational to all who would come after them. Their testimony gives them something that they then can look at all those that come later. In fact, it forms a kind of foundation Mm. that goes all the way through the word. Oh, yeah. So turn with me to Revelation 21, verse 14. Who's going to read that? Gabriel Arias. Amen. Get it. 
Revelation 21, verse 14. Amen. Man, this is the city. This is the very end of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is, this, this is the city that is coming down. And what are the names of those 12 foundations? The names of those 12 men yeah. who came to Jesus when he was just a carpenter, when he was just a simple man, a simple son sent by his father into the darkness of the Galilee region, and nobody else saw it. They followed him in those simple situations. These men sat and still sit to this day at the table with Jesus. Come on. They were with him from the very beginning. And because they were with him in those special times where there weren't a lot of big crowds, where there was the most time of persecution, they will and they still sit at the table with Jesus. Amen. These men will sit on 12 thrones judging Israel. Think about that for a Amen. second. These 12 men who are willing to have the faith to follow him first will sit on 12 thrones judging entire tribes. All 12. See, it's not necessary to redefine Israel or to allegorize it. The same promises that existed in David's time, where he sets up 12 thrones, the same promise that exists in Solomon's time, where he sets up 12 regional governors, that same promise carries through to Jesus' time because it's a part of the Davidic dynasty. And can I tell you, I've been to Israel many, many, many times. There are not 12 apostles sitting on thrones in Israel judging the nation of Israel. Because it must be fulfilled, but it has not yet been fulfilled. The point is, is the first stage of people that come to David is a very special stage because they endured every aspect of of his life with him, almost 20 years on the run from Saul. Yeah. And they got to see him go from that to king of all of Israel. Yeah. That is a special position. Something else that you should notice about verses 1 and 2. Could you read it again? Help me out, Linton. Yes, sir. These were the men who came to David at Ziklag while he was banished to the presence of Saul, son of Kish. They were among the warriors who helped him in battle. They were armed with bows and were able to shoot arrows or sling stones right-handed and left-handed. They were kinsmen of Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. They were kinsmen of who? Saul. Saul. Who were the first people that came to David? Kinsmen of Saul. Saul could be read two different ways in Hebrew. It could mean asked for or it could be read as Sheol, which is death, the grave. The, the place of death. Those that had tasted of this were the very first ones to run to David. Come on now. I'd like to put some New Testament perspective on that. Who's going to read it? Nolan, take Colossians 1, 11 through 14. Who else? Kaysen, take Luke 2, 8 through 14. Who else? Ibrahim, Mizraim, get Luke 2, 31 through 32. Cho, take Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. Timo, take 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 10. 
Now, obviously, we're going to interrupt you guys a great deal. But now we're in Colossians 1, 11 through 14. When you read your passage, call out the address for those taking notes. Colossians 1, 11 through 14. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, oh, yeah. and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of life. A hold for a second. Think about these men that ran to David while he is uh, in the first stage of running from Saul. If they're Saul's relatives, did they feel qualified to be with the Davidic king? No. no. But he qualified them. That's right. yeah. Through the intimacy of their relationship, they developed trust. They developed even uh, such a strong bond that we covered it the other night. They, he, he would not drink water that they risked their lives to get him because it represented their blood. There was such a mutual love. You know what qualifies you in the kingdom? It's not a lofty theological principle. It is your intimacy with Jesus Christ. Uh, Keep going, brother. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The first stage of men who came to David reminds me of another setting in the Newer Testament. It reminds me of Jews who were shepherds in fields. These came, these men, like the Jewish shepherds, that came to David were the first to receive the truth of the light that would be delivered to the whole world. They then get to witness and become a part of the armies of heaven. I want you to hear that as Luke 2, 8 through 14 is read. Paul's there, Casey. Once again in Luke, how is Jesus introduced? We just read it together. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. He will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. Again, as we progress, where men are having the revelation of who Jesus is, he's introduced as the son of David in the town of David. You think the writer's trying to emphasize this with a point? He wants you to understand that this guy is not just any Israelite. He is an Israelite of Judah, of all of the Judites. He is of David, and they want you to have this picture as we read the next verse. Yeah, come on. Get verse 13 and 14. Praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. A multitude or a great company, some translations say. When the son of David is introduced, an angel announces it. And then there is a great multitude that is growing as the shepherds have a revelation of who he is. So they hear these words and then something greater is revealed. It gets to the place where the heavens and a multitude and a great company are appearing around this event. 
The early remnant has the privilege of carrying the message to all who come after them. These shepherds, they tend to sheep. They're actual shepherds. It's not exactly the highest class job you've ever heard of. They're standing out in the field with animals all day. And yet they were qualified because they had a revelation about the Davidic son. And when they had that revelation, they went to go see him. They recognized the times and responded to it. Then they carry that message to those that they come in contact with. This was true in David's time, and it's also true in David's son's time. Look what else happens in the same chapter of Luke, just a few verses down. See, this was the message that was being proclaimed to these first men. And now, after this was proclaimed to these first men, guess what they go and do? They take that message and they go out and proclaim it. They join that heavenly host in going out and proclaiming it. This Davidic son is glory for the people of Israel. That was the message. This Davidic son is glory, just like those first people to follow David. This, son, this David is going to be glory for our people Israel. This Davidic son is glory for the people of Israel and, and a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Always both are together. When thinking of the early remnant of Jewish believers, whether in David's time or whether in the Davidic son's time, all who joined the heavenly army came after them, these first men. All who came after them was a result of those first men work. Let me tell you why that's important. If we only had one stage of men who came to David, they would come to David and say, David's our king. He's not anybody else's king. He's our king. And then they would fit nicely into several branches of Christian theology right now. But they didn't do that. They set out to take David's kingship that they were receiving and make David king over everyone else. See, That is what is wrong with segmenting the scripture. You miss these things. Everybody who ever received the kingship of David's son, Jesus, wanted then for everyone else to receive it. But it is first and foremost for Israel. First and foremost. I want to show you that in Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. Who had that? Uh, It's actually 11 through 13. Pause for a minute and ask yourself, who is we that is chosen? What is the one nation on earth that was chosen? Israel. Israel. I'm going to ask you to consider that that's what he's talking about and then follow it through and see if it makes sense. In him, we Israelites were chosen. Keep going, Cho. The only nation on earth that was predestined by God to be saved is Israel. And he said so many times. The book of Romans teaches this explicitly. But what Paul is telling the Ephesians is we, Israelites, who were the first to believe in Christ, and then also you, Gentiles, were included when. That is an important thing 
Because in David's kingdom, there were stages. And those who came to him first would always be a part of his kingship, but it was their job to go get all of the others. And they did it successfully in this chapter. Stage one of building the army involved those who were the first to hope in the Davidic son. All others came after them. The third thing that we want to show you tonight about stage one is that those early men who came to David and Ziklag, they also reflect the earliest believers in Yeshua in that they were ambidextrous. <laughs> the scripture says in the first two verses that they were able to shoot arrows or to sling stones right-handed or left-handed. Come on, yeah, you go, what are we talking about? Well, that ought to remind you of an early Jewish believer of the tribe of Benjamin named... Shaul Paulus of Tarsus, because he was also ambidextrous. Who had 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 10? Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, Mm. in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left hand. Timo, Timo, you got paused for just a minute. <laughs> weapons of righteousness and a right and left hand. We just read to you Mark 12, 24. Many think about the Spirit of God and the Word of God, and that is certainly true. But in light of men who came to David in his earliest days, who like Peter were sifted, I want you to listen carefully as Timo reads the remaining verses. Through glory and dishonor. Right and left. Bad report and good report. Right and left. Genuine, yet regarded as impostors. Right and left. Known, yet regarded as unknown. Dying, and yet we live on. Beaten, and yet not killed. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having... Having nothing and yet possessing everything. See, you have everything when you possess the son of David. These men had a special blessing because they ran to him before anyone else. They also endured a special amount of that torture, of that pain, of that suffering, of that sifting to see David seated on his throne. But when you live a life like that, with a right and left hand, you take everything that God has for you. You're not waiting for someone else. You're not waiting for it to become popular. You possess everything. Certainly this is a great example of the trials that accompany those who go first and the extraordinary equipping that we should all be diligently seeking to obtain, both the glory and the dishonor. Saints, let's get back into our text tonight. With uh, Linton, you pick back up in verse 3 and read through 8 for us. Actually, read through 14. Ahazer, the chief, and Joash, Son of Shabbat, the Gibeonite, Gazeel and Pelet, the sons of Azmaveth, yeah. Jerichah, Jehu, the Anathek, and Ishmael, the Gibeonite, a mighty man among the thirty, who was the leader of the thirty, Jeremiah, Jahaziel, Johanan, Jozabad, the Gedorite, Eluzai, Jeremoth, Beliah, Sheremiah, Shemataiah, the Herophite, Elkanah, Ishiah, Azazel, Joezer, Joshua, the, the Korathites, and 
Jola and Zebediah, the sons of Jerome. <laughs> You're doing great, brother. You're doing great. Church, how might you have learned to say that word? Ah, oh. Keep reading, brother. Obadiah, the second in command. Mm. Elias, the third. Mishmah, the fourth. Jeremiah, the fifth. Atai, the sixth. Eliel, the seventh. Johannes, the eighth. Elzabad, the ninth. Jeremiah, the tenth. And Macbani, the, the eleventh. These Gadites were army commanders. The least, of, the least was a match for a hundred, and the greatest a match for a thousand. All right, so we're about to get into the second stage. But before we do, I want to talk to you about something. Did you read in verse 9 that Ezer was the chief? Ezer was the chief. What does Ezer mean? Helper. Ezer, in its most literal form, means helper. But that's not all it means. In Genesis, where we first see the word Ezer, it says about Adam that no suitable Ezer was there for him. So God made an easer, a helper for Adam. And guess what? Adam could not continue in the calling that he had unless God provided someone there to help him in his calling. An easer is someone there to help in doing what could not be done without the easer. So think about that for a second. Ezer was the chief of all these men, and they're about to do something for David and his kingdom. I want to tell you that they're... In the first times when men are coming to the Lord, even to Jesus, right? They are coming to him and they are supposed to be an easer. But did everybody that came to Jesus end up being an easer to Jesus' mission? Not at all. In fact, some began to work against Jesus' ministry and they were some of the closest to him. We see the same thing in David's men. David had many men who came to him and yet some of them defected and they ended up doing more harm than good. I want you to keep this in mind as we continue. This is going to play a huge theme in our teaching tonight. As we come to the Davidic son, we are to easer him in his mission. That is the most important function of coming to the Davidic son is being an easer to him. Now that we know that. Caleb, in the most basic sense, who is your easer? Your wife. These are the people that comprise the bride of Christ. Yep. Do you remember in the last chapter, David proposed wedding language? And the nation joined him in it? Now the men that are coming to him straight out of the desert are led by an Ezer. Now, if Ezer's not a word you're familiar with, just think special helpmate that helps you do what no one else can do. An essential, cherished help Caleb cherishes his wife because Caleb could not function in his calling. He better. He married way out of his league. (laughs) An easer is is an essential, cherished help that carried on and helped complete the call. Let's put that slide back on the screen. We're going to get into our second stage of the men that came to David. Where did they come from? In the second stage. Where did they come from? From the desert. I'd like to teach you just a little bit about that. We've got a next slide, Pastor. Yes, sir. Genesis is about the origin of all things. 
and the election of God's people, Israel. Israel. Exodus is about the redemption of God's nation, Israel. which is Israel. Leviticus is about the sanctification of God's nation, Israel. Numbers is about the direction of God's nation, Israel. Deuteronomy is about the instruction of God's nation, Israel. Let's put on some Hebrew eyes for a minute and see how the word desert relates to it. Genesis is Bereshith in Hebrew. Forgive me, Ohad. <laughs> of course, it means in the beginning. Exodus is called Shemot in Hebrew. It means names. Leviticus, Veikra in Hebrew, and it means he called. He is the Lord. Numbers, Bemidbar, in the wilderness, which in the Bible, a wilderness is not a forested area. It is a desert. desert. Deuteronomy is called Devarim. The words. Think about the story that just the foundation of the Bible is built on. In the beginning, these are the names that he called in the desert and gave his words. Amen. The whole point here is that the stages of David's building of his army are very similar to the way that Jesus built his army. People came to him before he rose to prominence. And people were drawn to him because they recognized they were in a desert spiritually. In fact, you're going to find out they were in a desert in more ways than that. The book that comes next after Deuteronomy is Joshua. And Israel crosses the Jordan in that book. I want you to keep that in mind for a moment. Before we get there, let's look at a few attributes of the Gadites who serve as essential, cherished help to complete and continue the call of God on Israel, as led by their Davidic king. As Judah does this, we just dropped a big hint, and <laughs> it's, it's late. I think you missed it. You've, yeah. you've been coroned and sequestered and <laughs> tickled and fed grapes. There is a place where people were baptized in Israel. The book of Joshua. Oh, wow. See? See, we'll just sit on that for a minute. Go ahead, Judah. We're going to do some other things first. But you might want to file that away somewhere. Let's read verse 8 for us one more time, just as a refresher. Some Gadites defected to David at a stronghold in the desert. I'm going to read you Psalm 18, verse 30. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. God's word has always been and will always be a stronghold for those who run to the Davidic son. That was true in Psalms, it was true in the law, and it is true here in Chronicles. When you receive his word in the desert, you remember our slide that was just up, just like God calling his people out of the desert. When you receive that word, when you receive that call, all you want to do is help Usher in his kingdom. It's your purpose. It's your life goal. It's all that you desire. And there is rest in there. Let's take a look at Hebrews 6, 18 through 20 together. Y'all there? Say there when you're there. Everybody flip to it. There. There's a phrase I want you to see in Hebrews 6. There. 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 All right. Hebrews 6, verse 18 through 20. God did this... So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled, we who have fled to take hold of the hope 
offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Oh, come it on. enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain Amen. where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That phrase, we who have fled, was written to the second wave of Jews in the Messianic community. Those men who had heard the first men, they were listening to chief easers and they were fleeing to the son of David, just like is happening in Chronicles. Mystery Gentiles would be included in this phase, but it still began as a Jewish thing. It was Jewish apostles, Jewish disciples sent and preaching to other Jews and Gentiles were included later. The entirety of this process is defined by the chief easer, the help that wants to bring about the call of Israel under the Davidic king. Get that those first Jewish apostles, those first disciples, they wanted to bring about the call of Israel under the Davidic son, just like the men in Chronicles. The text also gives us attributes of these amazing warriors. What's verse 8 say, Linton? Some got They were brave warriors, ready for battle, and able to handle the shield and the spear. Man, thank God for men like that. Verse 14 also says, calls them commanders who who the least could handle a hundred and the greatest a thousand. So these men were extraordinary. They heard the first disciples. They were brave warriors, ready for battle. Come on, talk about discipleship. They could handle the shield. They could handle the spear. And then the least of them could handle a hundred and the greatest a thousand. You know what? When you hear the least could handle a hundred and the greatest a thousand, are there any scriptures that come to your mind? This ought to remind you of Leviticus 26, verse 3 through 4. Leviticus 26, 3 through 4. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, this is the preface for something we're going to hear. Now you'll slide down to verse 7. You will pursue your enemies and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. I will look on you with favor and make you fruitful. Amen. And increase your numbers. And I will keep my covenant with you. Hallelujah. These were blessings that were given to those that ran to the Messianic king. The word given by the Davidic son to those that find themselves in the desert always makes them strong, capable warriors. Amen. They're able to lead because Amen. the word is what is leading them. Amen. Another attribute that was mentioned according to the second wave in verse 8 was their faces were like the face of lions. Come on. Face in Hebrew culture is more than appearance. It literally speaks of a certain kind of attitude that characterizes the whole man. Yeah. We want to hit a few of these quickly just to give you that idea. Could we put Isaiah 50 Verse 7 and 8 on the screen. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. I have set my face like flint. And I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. 
Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. In the Bible and in Hebrew culture, your face represents more than just your pretty makeup. It represents more than whether or not you chose to have a smooth baby face or grow out a beautiful beard. It represents the character of a man. It's the likeness of what is inside of him. When the writer Isaiah says, he set his face like flint. The imagery is of something that is immovable, that is sharp, that would sooner break than give up its purpose. To have a lion-like face or one that is like flint speaks of bold resoluteness that is not deterred. The lion is a symbol in many cultures, but was prominently featured in the society that God designed as symbols of righteousness, resolute boldness, and regality. Describes lions as adorning the Davidic dynasty in 2 Chronicles 9 that we're going to get to shortly. The lion is the sole symbol for the tribe of Judah. For the tribe of who? Judah! Which is why Jesus himself referred himself as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Revelation 5.5 introduces him that way. Just to give you a little backdrop before we move to our next. 2 Chronicles 9, when we get there. When you hear about David's natural born son, Solomon. His throne has lions on the side of it. The steps up to the throne have lions all the way up and down it. When he's designing the temple, when he's designing the palace, it is associated with God. Now, are Gadites from Judah? Something about these men's life and their association with the Davidic son gave them a face and a countenance that was dim on. Let me tell you what that looks like. You may be nothing like Jesus, and yet... The more time you spend being drawn to him, the more you become like him. I mean, it's very awkward. We're from every nation in the world in here. And you fall in love with a brown-skinned Jew that you may have not one thing in common with. But the longer you love him, study about him, the more like him you become. David drew men to himself that became exactly like David and like what David was building. Proverbs 28.1. The wicked man flees, though no one pursues him. But the righteous are as bold as a lion. You hear how plain that is? The righteous are as bold as a lion? That's like the same thing as saying that the righteous have faces like lions. This is characteristic of all who would help to establish the Davidic throne. To all who would be a chief easer to establish the Davidic throne. To all who enter into the plan of God. When you enter into God's plan... When you join into God's plan, he will make you as bold as a lion. This is what real faith has always looked like. You remember that famous C.S. Lewis book, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe? You remember the lion named Aslan? The question was asked, is he safe? The answer was no. He is not safe, but he is good. It has never been safe to follow the lion of the tribe of Judah. But it is good and requires lion-like men, not pretty pansy-like Pawns. When you follow a warrior like David or the Davidic son, he will make you into a lion-like warrior. Hey, we want to go to Romans 4 to talk about lion-like faith for a minute. This is Romans 4, beginning in verse 19. Without weakening in his faith, what did he do? He faced the fact. That's lion-like faith face right there. Come on. See, it doesn't mean that they had mustaches like lions. (laughs) It doesn't mean that we're 
we're going back to the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> it means something about them carried the kind of bold tenacity yes. that was lion-like. Come on. Well, Abraham had that too. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Yeah. Since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. Come on but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Amen. These men who came to David at the desert stronghold are showing lion-like faith, faith like Abraham. Come on. All they want to do, their chief aim, is to be an easer to God's plan, a help to God's plan. Yes for Israel Amen. and for Israel's king. They are men who are devoid of secondary gain motives. Whoa. They have come to fight for David and fight for the plan of God for Israel. Amen. There could not be a time that the church world needs to hear yeah, this so more. Yeah. For some reason they are not aware that we are serving a Jewish king that still has a plan for his nation. Amen. In fact, if you, if you tend to struggle with boldness, if you tend to struggle with fear and insecurity, what you need to do is get rid of everything else in your life that is not according to the plan of God, and he will fill you with lion-like boldness. Amen. Look, we want to show you something that is beautiful about these Gadites. Gadites are some that are considered... Can we get any bigger... Uh, Transjordan tribes, meaning they settled on the east side of the, trans, uh, of the Jordan River. They're on the wrong side of the Jordan River. Yeah. I can't quite point to it here, but just above the Sea of Galilee, so scan down, Pastor, up, and south of Manasseh, I'm sorry, come down. <laughs> there we go, Gad! <laughs> Gad! East side of the Jordan. This presents a problem. Somebody read verse 15. <laughs> it was they who crossed the Jordan in the first month when it was overflowing all its banks. And they put to flight every one living in the valleys. Stop the presses for a minute. We have another Jordan crossing? We have an incredible Davidic leader? And we have a Jordan crossing? What month did this occur in? The first month. Come on now. What else happens in the first month? Passover happens in the first month. Do you think we have some kind of renewal happening? Yeah. That is the same month their ancestors crossed over to fight under Joshua in Joshua chapter 5. It's more than that. There is a continuity of spiritual history going on here. Amen. And I want to catch you up on it a little bit. Israel first failed to cross the Jordan because they were scared of Nephilim in Numbers 14. Then Israel followed Joshua because he took them across at Passover and they took the land. The Gadites that we're reading about descend from Gadites who failed to settle in the land in an earlier time. You can read about that in Numbers 32. This separation from God's plan and God's design in Gadite history caused idolatry and separation. You can read about that in Joshua 22. 
Then under the Davidic dynasty, right now in this passage, they cross over, but they don't just cross over, they cross over at Passover, (laughs) and they become a part of an army that is said to be like God's army. And they show themselves to be lion-like men. In every generation, we have to face something. In every generation, we get to choose whether we're going to be a part of God's plan and exalt the Davidic dynasty or deny it. The choice always involves a kind of Jordan experience. Thanks. Luke 7.30 teaches us something. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Where did John baptize, saints? Jordan. Jordan. This is not by coincidence. The place that John immersed and that Jesus was baptized is referred to in the book of John. It's referencing something that is building this particular spot that just looks like a dirty river has significance because of what it has done in the people of God and calls to come out of them. Let's look at John one twenty-eight together. If you have it in New King James, that will be awesome. If not, it's okay. These things were done in Bethbara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Bethbara means house of the crossing. Come on. In other words, Jesus was baptized at the same place that Israel crossed the Jordan. Now, what gets very cool about that is the Gadites are also crossing the Jordan to join the Davidic king. Can you see some of the symbolism beginning to compound on itself? The point of what we're explaining is that these Gadites were full of great exploits because they had the courage to repent of earlier failures. Come on. What was John's baptism? A baptism of repentance. The Jordan crossing always represents baptism into repentance. They saw the plan of God and wanted to aid in the rise of the Davidic king and the fulfillment of God's word to Israel. Men in every generation must reclaim this lion-faced courage. May we be led by Ezer as a chief, one who wants to be an essential, cherished help to Israel's king and Israel's plan. The plan to do that is always repentance. If you are joining into God's plan, if you're joining into making the Davidic king, king overall, it always starts at facing past failures, moving forward in repentance, and then joining him like lion-faced men who know they've left everything behind. Amen. Let's pick up in verse 16. Other Benjamites and some men from Judah also came to David in his stronghold. David went out to meet them and said to them, if you have come to me in peace to help you, I am ready to have you unite with me. To have you what? Unite. That also sounds like wedding language, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. But if you have come to betray me to my enemies, when my hands are free from violence, may the God of our fathers see it and judge you. In the last session, we discussed how both David and Jesus use wedding language when speaking to Israelites. Here, men are asking to unite with David, which is also clearly wedding language. The Hebrew is like, have our hearts knit together. What we must all understand is that there have been enough false brides, enough whores of Babylon, and enough doeg-like shepherds who do not desire Israel's welfare 
that Israel has a healthy, le healthy level of skepticism yeah. going on right now. Yeah. We want to learn something from a name that is about to appear in verse 18. Let's put that slide on the screen. Amasai. Amasai literally means burden bearer. We have a next slide, brother. Our next few verses are the conversation that happened between these men that came to David and David over the conversation of uniting. Linton, if you would pick up in verse 18 and just read through that stanza. Yes, then the spirit came on Amasai, the chief of the 30, and he said, We are yours, O David. Yours, O David. We are with you, son of Jesse. Yeah. Success, success to you, and success to those who help you, for your God will help you. Saints, our translators are working to help us understand a thought, but they're not literally translating what the word says. If you're reading this or looking at it in Ohad's Bible or looking at an interlinear, when you see success, success to you, and success to those who help you, the word is shalom. What does shalom represent? It's, right it's peace. It's right standing. It's more than just tranquility. It is right order with God and man. They are proclaiming their desire to see the Davidic son, to see Israel, to see God's will on earth in right order. So much so that they say it three times. Shalom. Shalom to you. Shalom to those who would easier you. Those who would help in the endeavor of bringing about the son of David's reign on earth. Shalom to those, for your God will easer. Amen. They recognized that Shalom was on the son of David. They recognized that God's hand of help was upon him, an essential, cherished thing that could not be done without. Yeah. And they realized they couldn't do without it. They needed it. They wanted it. They were rallying to it by the Spirit of God moving upon a man. Amen. Now let's get real about something. Do you have the feeling that they could have been in trouble if... Amasiah didn't show up, though? <laughs> yeah, it, you kind of get the impression that David is a little bit wary, a little bit skeptical. He, he's met some false brides before. He, he's met some Doeg-like shepherds before. Well, that's exactly what it's like when we're dealing with the nation of Israel today. Yeah. And do you know what needed to show up? A man named Amasiah, who was willing to bear a burden whether he had caused the problem or not. Because a burden existed. Come on. And then what is said out of Amaziah's mouth, out of the people, is we are with you, son of Jesse. Come on. <laughs> Acknowledge the king of the Jews comes from only one place. His kingdom comes from only one place. And you need to acknowledge that. You need to get with it. Amen. And then better than that, you're wishing, wishing a right order with God and man to that nation, Amen. to those people. Shalom, shalom to you, true king of Israel and people of Israel. Shalom to anyone who helps Israel. Amen. Shalom because God will help you if you help Israel. Tell me the church doesn't need that message. When I talk like this in other places I go, people follow me out into the parking lot with weird internet conspiracy theories about why Israel is not important. So let me ask you something. 
Do you truly wish shalom and success to Israel's king on behalf of Israel? Yes. Do you truly wish shalom and success to anyone who helps Israel and the king of Israel? Yes. You must get shalom in your spirit, shalom in your soul, and shalom in your physical being about this issue, or you would be serving a Jewish Messiah in a very selfish way. See, David was concerned that they came to him so they could get something from him, not so that they could do something for him. And their response was with all of their being. Shalom out of the spirit, shalom out of the soul, shalom out of my physical being, shalom to you with everything, David. And they proved it with a lifetime of service. Those who are an easer, uh, a help to Israel's Messiah will find God is an easer or a help to them. Amen. Send out some scriptures. Matthew 15, 24. Who wants to take it? Jack? Luke 2, 25, Cody, Romans 9, 3 through 5, Marlin, Romans 11, 11 through 12, Assad, you get that back there, 2 Timothy 2, 10, Chris, then we'll pick it back up from there. Whenever you get to Matthew 15, 24, we're going to pick up and keep in mind the only way to obtain the shalom that they're proclaiming is for right order with the son of David. His people, his place, his land. Matthew 15, 24. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The Davidic son was focused on gathering of the gathering of his people. It's a mystery that becomes revealed the extent to which our lives would be included in the shalom, shalom, shalom. And that easering that we desperately needed but the very reason that he was sent was to gather the lost sheep of Israel to restore the disarray that, was ex- that had existed. The, the d- basic question that David has of the people standing outside asking to be included is do you really share my purpose yeah. or do you just want to benefit That's from exactly me? Right. If you want to share in the kingdom of a Jewish king, then you must have his purpose at the center of your life. So as a mysterious inclusion, we are the unknown. They are the unknown. When you hear Jesus saying, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. They are experiencing people that are turning to the son of David and they do not know what the response is. But what we are depending upon in our lives and in the world around us is that the spirit of God will turn on men, land upon men, and cause them to proclaim the name of the son of David and want to take up that mantle. We have been included in what happened to that burden bearer, and it is now our job to bear this same burden. Let's take a look at 2, 25 through 26. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Come on, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. You could read that, and you could see right there that Simon was bearing the burden of God's plan for Israel. He was bearing the burden for God's plan. He knew that the Davidic son must rise in fulfillment to God's word for the consolation of Israel. He knew that probably because he read Chronicles. We are the mysterious graft in. We must be in shalom 
with the Davidic sons' consolation of Israel. We are the adopted sons. Therefore, as entering into the house, we have to take on the father and the natural brothers playing for the family. Who had Romans 9, 3 through 5? Wow. From them, yeah, keep going, brother. You got it. I thought you paused on me. In every stage that men come into the kingdom, they must be working as a help or easer to God's plan. They must be working for the consolation of Israel through the Davidic son, or you are actually not working for God's purpose. Oh, wow. Romans 11. Who's got Romans 11? Romans 11, 11 12. Again, I ask, did they stumble plus the fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Come on. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to all Gentiles to make Israel envious. Come on. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for Gentiles, how much greater riches with their fullness, sorry, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? Amen. Since the entire book of Chronicles is dedicated to emphasize the fact that after Israel's stumbling, after the Davidic stumbling, that Israel's consolation would still arrive through the Davidic son. They're cataloging this for the purpose of emphasizing it. Do not be so foolish as to think that you can be grafted into their plan without them being included in it. The son of David and the people of Israel must reign to see life from the dead. We must work for the consolation of Israel. This is our focus. This is our joy. In fact, listen to what it says. Salvation has come to us so that we may make Israel envious. Think about it. We have salvation so we can help in the Davidic son's plan. I want to read 2 Timothy 2.10. Because of that, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may too obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Who is the elect, church? Israel is the elect. That means we must be in total shalom. We must be in total shalom with the Davidic son. We must be in total shalom with our brothers. We must be in total shalom with God's plan so that we can be an easer to God just as he is an easer to us. You see how this rests on us? If we are not in total shalom with any of those three things, we can't be an easer. So let's... Let's pick up in verse 19. Yeah. Does that sound like a good plan to y'all? Yes. All right. You're going to read it, Linton? Yes. I know how you love this. You, you and Jennifer have, have coordinated perfectly in your enunciation as well. It's like a co-witness that none of us know how to say this. But it's great. It's, go, come on, brother. Some of the men of Damascus defected to David when he went with the Philistines to fight against Saul. He and his men did not help the Philistines. Because after consultation, the rulers sent them away. They said, it will cost us our heads if he deserts to his master Saul. That's true. When David went to Ziklag, 
these were the men of Manasseh who defected to them. Adnan, Jehoshaphat, Gideon, Michael, Jehoshaphat, Elihu, and Zillathai, leaders of the units of a thousand men of Manasseh. They helped David against the rape. They helped David against raiding bands, for all of them were brave warriors, and they were commanders in his army. Day after day, men came to help David. Wait, say that one more time. Day after day. Huh, okay. Day after day, men came to help David until he had a great army, like the army of God. Wow. These, Go ahead. These are the numbers of the men armed for battle who came to David at Hebron to turn Saul's kingdom over to him, as the Lord had said. We've reached our third stage. These are the men that are coming to him just before or at his kingship in Hebron. Now that we've reached this third stage, David, like the Davidic son, is assembling an army. An army that is like the army of God. They are there for one purpose, to turn over the kingdom that sinful Saul reigned in, but was God's, Israel, to David. That's why they're there. They only have one purpose. Nobody is there to be personally enriched. <laughs> Nobody is there so that a televangelist will send them back seven times what they sent him. They are there to turn the kingdom of Saul into the kingdom of David. They have one united purpose. Whether they came in early in stage one, in the middle in stage two, or they're stage three Christians, they have come for one purpose. This army is growing day after day. Amen. Another way to say day after day in the Newer Testament is daily. Yeah. <laughs> so we want to pick up on that idea in Acts 2, 42 through 47. Amen. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as, they had need, as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Day after day! They were being saved. Do you okay. know why? Because these people had no secondary gain issues. Wow. They didn't come to Jesus to get something from him. They came to do something for him. Amen. Just like the men who came and built the kingdom with David. They were not there to be enriched. In fact, they gave away what they had. They sold what they had. They were totally dedicated to the task. And that is why God built the army Daily. Yeah. Amen. Considering the subject of the army of God, listen to Revelation 19, 11 through 14. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. Who are we describing, saints? His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following Hallelujah. him. 
riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, fine linen, white and clean. The bride is wearing fine linen. Revelation 19.8 tells us about his bride that has been given fine linen and is included in the armies of heaven. Come on, a fighting bride. Yeah. Not a bride who fights with you, a, a bride that fights for you. <laughs> They're coming to restore the Davidic throne. A girl that's going to fight for her man. Yeah. They're coming with him, with the clothing that he provided to make God's dwelling with men and his capital. What is his capital, saints? Jerusalem. Amen. All right, I'm going to read Revelation 17, 14. They will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them. Amen. Because he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. The Lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Come on, how many people do we have are called in here? But are you called and also chosen? If you are called and chosen, you also have to be faithful to the Davidic son. Only the called, chosen, and faithful followers will comprise this army and will be, be the ruling force on the planet Earth. Only the ones that come to him and their sole focus is to help him build his kingdom. Hallelujah. We've been talking so much about the stages and the way they center around Israel. I do want to show you a non-Israeli that fits into this plan and how. Because I think that's special. Let's go to Matthew 8. Praise God for the example. Yeah. <laughs> and Get pick up in verse 5. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> when Jesus had entered Capernaum, or Kafor Nahum, a centurion came to him. Centurions were not Jews, they were Romans. When Jesus had entered Kafar Nahum, a centurion came to him, asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The mysterious inclusion of the Gentiles is for those who accept the word of the Davidic son like a soldier who receives his orders so that they are in shalom with him and are an easer to the plan of God so that God can turn then and be an easer to them. 
You cannot enter the kingdom as a Gentile with an optional plan B. No. You're either for your commanding officer or you're not. (laughs) On that note, let's hear Paul's writings to Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, verse 3 and 4. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Saints, you are serving a commanding officer that is the root of Jesse, that is the son of David. And that son of David has enlisted you into his ranks, into his army. He is making you more like him every day. Faces like a lion, teaching you a spear and a shield. But I tell you, that son of David wants his kingdom. He wants Israel. He wants every one of his 12 tribes and he wants his throne and the Gentiles that would be united with him. Our purpose, our goal is to see our king enthroned upon the earth. We have to ask this evening, how much have you understood this plan? How much have you understood that you are a soldier enlisted in the Davidic army? That your job is to bring about his kingdom? Have you developed your own plan as if the word of God originated with you? As if you were the source that it was always aiming at? Are you the one who is gifted to be able to graft it in, be grafted in to the son of David? One under his command as a soldier to him. We have to recognize in our daily life and consider, am I operating like one who is under the commander? Not an optional suggestion. These men came with a full intent and we want you to have that this evening. Come on, man. That's good. That's good. I don't know about you, but I want to be a good soldier. I want to have the opinions of my commanding officer. I want to have the goals of my commanding officer. And I want to share in the successes of my commanding officer. We're about to read of men of the third stage. And this is going to get so good. Linton, would you read verse 23 one more time? Yes. These are the numbers of the men armed for battle who came to David at Hebron to turn Saul's kingdom over to him as the Lord had said. These are the men armed for battle who came to David. We have a slide that we're going to put on the screen to summarize these men. Now when we say summarize these men, all we did was take each verse between here, 23 and 37, And we wrote down what was unique about them. Okay? Starting with Judah. Interesting that Judah is always first, right? The praise of God leading the battle. I want you to notice something, though, is interesting. Every tribe is represented here. Every single tribe. In most genealogies that you find of the tribes, there's always about one missing, but not here. And we'll get into that in a second. We have Judah, who is armed for battle. Simeon, who came ready for a fight. Levi, who brought, who brought with him brave Amen. officers. How important is that? Yeah. Benjamin was loyal to Saul until now. Their loyalty is what drove them to the Davidic son. Ephraim was famous in their clans, probably because of their ability to be experts in the application of violence. Manasseh was designated by name to make David king. Issachar understood the times and knew what they were to do. That is so important. That's that military intelligence right there. Zebulun was experienced with undivided loyalty. Naphtali brought officers 
with troops under their command. They had an entire fighting unit that they brought with them, ready to make the Davidic son king, or David king. Dan came ready for battle. Asher experienced and prepared for battle. Experienced. And the Transjordan tribes, which includes Gad, brought with them every kind of weapon. That's how you make David king. Well, now, you guys have heard it said before that Levites or priests don't fight. (laughs) Well, these ones do. Apparently, every member of the 12 tribes had a vested interest where they were willing to do whatever it took to see the son of David become king. We've been teaching a lot about priests and their households and how we are supposed to interact with the world. Remember, the son of David must rise no matter what. No matter what the cost is for you, even if it's picking up a sword again. Linton, will you pick up in 38 and read through 40 for us? All these were fighting men who volunteered to serve and left in the ranks. They came to Hebron fully determined to make David king over all Israel. All the rest of the Israelites were also of one mind to make David king. The men spent three days there with David, eating and drinking, for their families had supplied provisions for them. Also, their neighbors from as far away as Issachar, Zebulun, and Naphtali came bringing food on donkeys, camels, mules, and oxen. There were plentiful supplies of flour, big cakes, raisin cakes, wine, oil, cattle, and sheep, for there was joy in Israel. Man, there was joy in Israel. Yeah, Pastor, man. put that last slide back up there. Yes, sir. Uh, I know many of you have got Romans eleven twenty six memorized, <laughs> and that's, that's because you're well aware that all Israel is going to be saved. Oh, yeah. Israelites came to King David in three stages. They came from the very early days when he was on the run right up until the day that he walked into Hebron. It will be the same way in the days to come, but you need to know something. I mean, Zechariah literally says that. But you need to know something. Every single tribe in Israel will be represented on the day that Jesus is king over the whole world. Every single one and every tribe will bring something. They'll be armed for battle. They will bring with them the, the fact that their names have been designated to make him king. They will show that they understand the times and knew what to do. When you're reading about it in Zechariah, they mourn like somebody mourning for an only child as they look upon the one they pierced, but they receive him as king. It doesn't matter which tribe that you look towards. Even the Transjordan tribes that repent and come back across, they are bringing weaponry with them. All Israel will be saved. Verse 38, just to make this abundantly clear, all these fighting men, and they are from every tribe, all these fighting men who volunteered to serve in the ranks, they came to Hebron fully determined to make David king over all Israel. See, this is missing from too many Christians' uh, understanding. The Davidic dynasty, which of course David is the head of, is the prototype for the reign of Jesus Christ. And to make this an entirely Gentile thing with a few first-stage remnant Jews in is to misunderstand God's entire plan. In the 11th chapter of Romans, we don't have time to teach it tonight. We've taught it many times before. 
after the full number of Gentiles comes in, God will again turn his attention to Israel. Because every single tribe will be represented and be in the army of God, taking Israel back and ruling the entire world. That is biblical, factual, and more than that, it's the heart of our God. Amen. We want to do some things with you in these last few minutes with these themes. And uh, we're going to pick back up in verse 38. And we're going to emphasize a few words as we come to our close. All these were fighting men who volunteered to serve in the ranks. All 12 tribes were fighting men. They came to Hebron, fully determined to make David king over all Israel. All the rest of the Israelites were also of one mind to make David king. The men spent how many days? Three days. Three days. There with David, eating and drinking. Let's hold for a second. On the idea of three days, how many times have we done hundreds of six scripture strings on three days? So we're not. We're going to put one scripture on the screen for you. We want to suggest something to you. This is Hosea 6, beginning in verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us. You know who the us is? Israel. Israel. That we may live where? In his presence. presence. In his presence. This is what he promised in Exodus 15, 13, and he will make good on it. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. We want to read to you two scriptures. Justin's going to get one, I'm going to get the other. They're at the very beginning of the Brit, Chadashah, Hadashah, and the very end. I want you to notice exactly what the scripture emphasizes at the start and the closing. Yeah. Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. First verse in the New Testament identifies Jesus as what? Son of David. Listen to the last verses of the last book in the Newer Testament. This is Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. This testimony for all of the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. First and last verses of the Newer Testament are exactly like the book of Chronicles. Entirely showing you the Davidic line in Jesus Christ. Nothing about the Newer Testament changed any of these promises just like nothing about the exiles changed these promises, these promises are an immutable part of God's character that will never change. When He makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. There is something else that we want to do with you. But I want to read the last paragraph of this chapter again. All these were fighting men who volunteered to serve in the ranks. They came to Hebron fully determined to make David king over all Israel. 
I want to suggest to you that you should be fully determined to make Jesus king over Israel. Come on. Amen. You should be fully determined to see that kingdom then be over the whole globe. But salvation is first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Next, in verse 3. Then men spent three days, I'm sorry, the men spent three days there with David, eating and drinking. For their families had supplied provisions for them. Also their neighbors from as far away as Issachar, Zebulun, and Naphtali came, bringing food on donkeys, camels, mules, and oxen. There were plentiful supplies of flour, Fig cakes, raisin cakes, mm. wine, oil, cattle, and sheep. What does that last phrase say? For there was joy in Israel. When the king is king of the whole kingdom, there is joy in Israel. Amen. You know where else there's joy? In the king himself, because it's what he's always wanted. Yeah. He was sacrificed for Israel by Israel to redeem Israel. This is the reason that he appeared. Amen. was for Israel. It was a mystery yeah. that we could be included in it with them. Yeah. So we want to pick up in Philippians 2 with everybody in the room. Philippians 2, verse 1 through 5. And listen to this as, it's, as if it's written to you, okay? okay? If you have any encouragement from being united with the Davidic son. Is that like marriage language? Yes. yes. If any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. Paul is writing like a chief easer. He's saying, make my joy complete. And I believe that reflects the heart of the Davidic son. Make my joy complete. Amen. By being of one mind. Yeah. Wow. Having the same love. Being one in spirit and purpose. Wow. Whoa. Let's, let's get that. Joy is complete when we have the same mind as God has about a subject. Hmm. When we share the same purpose that God has about a subject. Come on. We have to get in the same heart, the same mind, so that we can share the same joy Come on. with Him. Amen. Israel is His bride. Yeah. Yeah. That ought to burden our hearts. Many of you have burdens for many places in the world than you should. I do too. I bet I've been to as many nations as anybody in the room preaching the gospel. But Israel must never be far from your thoughts. Amen. And every nation is, should be taught to take the gospel back to Israel. Period. We cannot sit and benefit from them spiritually and then act like we have no obligation to them. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others, especially Jews, <laughs> better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, especially Israel. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. I want to share with you guys tonight 
you hear us and we're talking, it's all about Israel, it's all about Israel. And that is what the entire Bible is all about. That is what the Davidic son is all about. But in him being all about Israel, he is also all about us. I want to tell you as someone who is on fire for the nation of Israel, this is me, this is my personal life. This is what I live in every day. 